Good morning. It's good to be with you all today, and it's good to actually be preaching in a church where I worship regularly. <laughs> For those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm Montague, and my family and I, we've been attending First Church for about two and a half years. Actually, I don't, three years. I'm not really sure. I haven't actually counted. Um, before attending here, we were a part of Peace River Christian Fellowship. Are you all hearing feedback? A little bit. I can't fix it, so we're just going to roll with it. <clears throat> uh, we were a part of Peace River, which is actually a church plant out of First Church uh, in the Ocean Beach neighborhood where we live. It ended up closing uh, amidst all of the COVID realities, and so we've been here. Uh, for Jenny and I, a lot of our involvement has really been in the open door class, uh, the, the Sunday school class that meets before the service. And our kids have been very involved in the children's programming and all that that provides to the community. During the regular week, I teach over at the university. I teach in ethics and practical theology. And beyond all of that stuff, some of our closest friends are here in the congregation. And so I know with all of you that this has been a unique year in the life of First Church, to say the least, right? Whenever I preach in unique situations, I like to lean on the lectionary. I like to think that perhaps there is some insight in the church year, in the Christian formation of uh, what the year looks like, in the passages offered there. I like to think there's some insight there that might be helpful for us in our particular situation. It's kind of cool because Christians, congregations, across the globe, across denominations and perspectives, uh, reflect together on similar passages uh, if you make use of the lectionary. So here we are on the third Sunday of Advent, and we're joining Christians across denominational lines and reflecting on joy through the passages of Scripture that were read earlier in the service. And we're about a week away from Christmas, so if you're one of those people who complain that Christmas music starts early in November. Hopefully at this point you've gotten accustomed to it. Uh, you know, I really do love Advent and the Christmas season, but I have to admit with some of the complainers, and you know who you are, uh, that sometimes it does feel like the images and the music and the glitz around the Christmas season can be a bit forced. I'm not a Grinch, and actually, actually, I read the story this morning at my children's request, and I was reminded, no, I'm not a Grinch. Um, I don't cringe at the first hearing of the Mariah Carey song, All I Want for Christmas. <laughs> I don't mind it. Um, I'm just saying that the way the shift takes place in society, it does seem a bit dishonest or disjointed. Take Home Depot, for instance. In September and October, you walk in, in my case, the door, I walk and I look to the right, and you see all these scary, huge statues and symbols of horror, morbidity, death. And then November hits and boom! Now it's evergreen trees and fun and smiling elves throwing fake Southern California snowflakes and... <laughs> You know, it's all supposed to be wonderful, and it's such a dramatic shift. 
it's like busting a U-turn on an expressway. I'm like, how is the human supposed to actually do that? It's, it's going to lead to some sort of crash. Something is going to crash into something. And I've been reminded that this is true on some of the drives when I've dropped uh, my kids off at school. and We would pass these huge skeletons that are in the front yards. And during Halloween time, they were used to scare people. But now there's just Santa costumes on them. <laughs> I'm like, what? It's not just one house that does this. Have you all seen this? It's the strangest thing. I don't know if it's a San Diego thing. I mean, I've lived in other places. I've never seen it before. Um, you know, San Diego's pressure, pressure to smile or whatever. I'm not sure. It probably is just... Um, people trying to make the most of their investment in the, in the Halloween festivities or whatever, or maybe a lack of garage space or a lack of time to take the skeleton <laughs> apart. I don't know. But clearly, folks don't know what to do with this societal, commercial turn towards the Christmas season. A Santa costume on a skeleton that was up for Halloween, that is literally a, a jolly cover-up over pain and death. I mean, literally. So here's the question. If the joy of Christmas is not supposed to be a cover-up over our pain, then what is it? What is it? This morning, I'm going to share a few stories about joy. It is an invitation for us to reflect on what joy is. That's simply what it is. A few stories as an invitation to reflect on what joy is. And the first story comes from the passage we read about John the Baptist. I don't know how much you know about John the Baptist, but by the time Jesus was an adult and ready to welcome disciples, many people were thinking that John the Baptist was the Messiah. John the Baptist was just a few months older than Jesus and was baptizing people and already had a host of disciples. And, you know, different rabbis had disciples, but, you know, there was something unique about John. He had a distinct persona and attracted many who listened to his preaching and teaching. In today's terms, we could say that John the Baptist was an influencer with a lot of followers who were ready to do whatever he told them to do. He held a great deal of responsibility and many were counting on him to be at the front of whatever this messianic Christ movement would be about. There were many ideas going on about what made John so influential and significant. The Gospel of Luke says that his parents were highly regarded. They were descendants of an important priest from the Old Testament, and they themselves lived a righteous life, and John the Baptist's dad was a priest himself. Along with this, Luke suggests that John's conception was surprising and actually miraculous in kind of the opposite way to Jesus's conception. While Mary was a virgin, and that made Jesus' conception very miraculous, the Gospel of Luke says that John the Baptist's mother was very old and unable to conceive. That's the language the NRSV uses for it, at least. And while unable to conceive, she did. 
there's something we're supposed to hear is kind of miraculous about John. People were wondering about this John the Baptist guy. John's mother is Elizabeth. She's that relative Mary visited when she was pregnant with Jesus. And Luke tries to prove that Jesus was the Messiah by writing in a scene where Elizabeth feels John leap in her womb when Mary shows up with Jesus in her womb. She says it like this, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leapt for joy, leaped for joy. It's interesting. John the Baptist is marked with joy even before he was born. And even more, his sense of joy was caught up in pointing out that Jesus is the Messiah. But here's the thing. All of that stuff there is written partly because many thought John was the Messiah. He came from what seemed to be the right family. He had a distinct charisma and intensity, and he acted with an authority that seemed to come from beyond any religious official. Luke even says he was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was born. He was actually kind of special. And with so many assuming he was the Messiah, it would even make sense for John the Baptist to think of himself as Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. But he doesn't. He does not. In the Gospel of John, we find that John the Baptist addresses this rumor head on. There's no story there about how special his conception was or even that he's related to Jesus. Rather, it's pretty simple and straightforward. And I'm going to read a part of what we all read together. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed. Notice like the emphasis on that. He confessed, I am not the Messiah. And he goes on to talk about the importance of Jesus. In chapter three, it actually comes up again. Some of John's disciples and other people in the Jewish community were a bit concerned that Jesus was gaining a lot of followers. Like, they knew John was all about Jesus, but they weren't sure what he thought about this idea that maybe Jesus would have more followers and the fact that some of John's disciples were like, we should go follow Jesus now. So some of John's disciples were like, what's going on? And they approached him. It says in chapter 3, it says, Now a discussion about purification arose between John's disciples and a Jew. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you testify, here he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, No one can receive anything except what has been given from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Messiah. But I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him 
rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. And it's interesting, in the Gospel of John, who's different than John the Baptist, by the way, different John, but he writes about John the Baptist. John the Baptist actually does decrease in the narrative. You know, he slowly fades. Chapter 5, there's a mention. And then other people pick it up. We find the woman at the well take on a mantle of announcing and letting people know, preaching about Jesus. We find that John the Baptist slowly does fade, even in John's narrative. You can even pick up that in the Gospel of John, there's a sort of like, yes, John was a big deal, but Jesus. And John is like, hey, I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. Jesus is the actual bridegroom. It's all good if the bride goes to him. It actually brings me joy. He may have had this joy since before he was born, but the fulfillment of his joy is freedom to not be the Messiah. John's joy is a freedom to not have to hold everything together. John's joy is a freedom to embrace his sense of calling and purpose without having to be what everyone expects him to be. His confession that he is not the Messiah is crucial to his joy. Now, I'm not sure if you ever felt pressure to hold things together, but it is interesting to think about that in light of all the pressures that come with Christmas. Having the right pictures with the right pajamas next to the perfectly decorated tree and the perfect fireplace you've never used, and then there's all the pressure to have all the perfect presents and experiences for the kids and then there's the pressure to be around all the family some of which you don't like and to mediate all the family conflicts who created all this pressure it wasn't jesus why do we put these pressures on ourselves and on certain others if we're to learn something simple from john the baptist It is that the actual joy of Christmas begins when you accept the good news that you are not the Messiah. You don't have to hold it all together. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, good news, you're not the Messiah. (laughs) I know there's probably a couple in here that's like, I've been waiting to tell you that. Feel free to say it again if you have to. (laughs) But it's true. You don't have to be the Messiah. The truth is, it is a good thing that no one of us is the Messiah. It is a good thing that no church leader is the Messiah. No district leader is the Messiah. No denomination is the Messiah. It is a good thing that the people who you might think have it all together and are perfect and you might even treat as Messiah, they are not the Messiah. The joy of Christmas begins when we accept the good news that no one of us is the Messiah. Let me tell you another story. 2015 was a unique year for me. 
We were not living in San Diego yet, but I did happen to be in San Diego uh, early on in that year to speak for a chapel gathering there at the university and for a retreat. Uh, I received a call very early in the morning before, to, before I was speaking in chapel, something like 3 or 4 a.m., and it was a call from my mother. And she called to tell me that her diagnosis with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma got worse and that she had three months to live. We had a brief conversation about it, and then I went back to sleep. I woke up around sunrise, and I wondered if I just, like, dreamt the whole conversation. So I checked my phone, and sure enough, she did call. I went for a jog and then chatted about it with Jenny. I got ready for the day, then preached in chapel right there at the university. It was actually my first time being on the campus. And as a family, we actually thought this whole three-month thing was wrong. We are like, eh, and my mom played it down, and we just kind of carried on a bit. But three months later, my mother passed. It was Holy Week, Maundy Thursday, just a few hours before Good Friday, and she passed. During her last three weeks, she went from barely being able to talk to having no voice at all and no ability to hold a pen. We had to read her lips and write out words and wait for her nods uh, of like silent yes or no and kind of like look at her mouthings to kind of figure out if we had it right. And we were also advocating with medical staff regarding different kinds of treatment. When we weren't at the hospital, we were researching possibilities about nursing homes and hospice care and nursing homes versus hospice care. We were looking into various procedures that were mentioned, and we were weighing all kinds of decisions that were literally about life and death. Certain family members, including myself, were juggling a whole lot. We felt a lot of responsibility to hold things together and make all the right decisions. And in the midst of that, I learned that my mother was afraid to die. She didn't feel ready. If any of you have seen the movie Encanto, um, you might remember a character named Luisa. She felt the pressure to carry the family burdens and be strong enough to get everyone through all the tough things. Some of us in my family, we felt just that way. And just like Louisa, we looked pretty strong, but under the surface, we felt berserk like a tightrope walker in a three-ring circus. It was a lot. As we came to terms with the idea that my mother would pass, the conversation slowly shifted. My mother's journey to becoming unafraid of death really is its own story for another time. It's a pretty cool story. But I began to talk with my mother about her funeral. We planned songs. Um, we planned activities, practices. We shared ideas about this funeral. And remember, it's like she could barely talk, so there's a lot of figuring it out and nods. And, and some of those nods were like happy nods. Like, you got it, you know, like that kind of thing. She wanted it to be meaningful. Now, planning a funeral has like all kinds of logistics and stressors. Many of you know that. 
But there was something about picking out songs together and imagining meaningful practices that made it all feel like wonder and possibility. I found myself joining her and feeling thankful for the mere fact that she lived, thankful that she knows God, thankful that she was our mother, thankful for the people who were journeying with us during those days, thankful that she was no longer afraid of death. There was a surprising spark of something I cannot describe in any other way than joy. It's strange. Now, it wasn't cheerful, and it certainly wasn't a cover-up over our pain. Rather, it was a freedom to wonder. Joy in the face of death was a freedom to receive grace, to offer grace, to feel thankful. Not a demand for those things, but a freedom. That spark of joy found us when we let go of all our attempts to manufacture happiness. And we just simply embraced each other. Here's another story from that same year, and it's somewhat connected. During those weeks of journeying with my mother toward death, she took the opportunity to demand that Jenny and I have kids. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> she had the demanding face of a <coughs> loving mother, but she had no voice. So there I am, writing out what she's mouthing, like, you know, only to find out that what she's saying is she's mad we didn't have kids yet. Remember that scene from the movie A Christmas Story where Ralphie is excited to use his decoder to figure out what, like, what the next episode of this like, radio program would be, and he's so pumped to figure it out, and then all it says is, be sure to drink your Ovaltine? And he's like, what? Well, it was something like that, but a lot more intense, you know? <laughs> like, wait, what? You're just telling us to have kids? Okay, whatever. She was feeling really comfortable with death at that point and putting all of her thoughts out there. Um, honestly, Jenny and I weren't sure at that point they would ever have kids, which was her point, because we were just kind of doing a lot, traveling. Actually, to get to the hospital, we were doing this trip where we were working on a, uh, like a recreation center for kids at the border, a different border, but we were like just doing a lot, and her point was like, stop, have kids, or whatever. Um, and I kind of, like, we weren't sure that we would, but I, at the time, just felt like I was lying to her. And I was like, uh, sure, Mom. Like, if we ever have a daughter, we'll make sure she gets your name. Sure, whatever. Um, after the funeral, we made our way back to Boston from Chicago. We lived in Boston. And within a week, we found out we were pregnant. <laughs> and it was a girl. It all felt very surreal. Um, as the months went on, with all the anticipation and angst, it was the strangest thing to walk through, a, like, grieving a mother's death and planning for a daughter's birth. And to feel the worlds of that emotion just interact. It was the strangest thing. And then one day, while we were in an all-day birth planning class, 
Don't have all-day birth planning classes where you sit down all day, by the way. Um, <laughs> it was like week 34, and we noticed Jenny's leg was swelling like throughout the day. And so she got it checked out, and she was told it would be fine. But then she had a, a headache over the weekend, and she was like, I should go get this checked out again. I know they said it'd be fine, but let me check it out. And of course, it was like complete opposite. The doctor's like, actually, you have stroke-level blood pressure. We need to get you to the hospital right away. And so we moved into the hospital. Um, we moved into the, the NICU. It's the, the intensive care unit for pregnancy and baby-related matters. Like, we literally, they're like, pack your bags. We're like, if you're into video games, bring your video game stuff, which we weren't. But it was like, okay, we're like moving into the hospital. So there we were in the hospital. This time, you know, like before, just earlier that year, we're in the hospital walking with my mother to death. And here we are again in the hospital just seven months later, hoping for the birth of our daughter. My mother passed during Holy Week, and our daughter was born just before the first Sunday of Advent. Like I said, unique year. It was once again a situation of life and death and anticipation and fear in the room. Jenny would try her best to like stay in the, this position so that her blood pressure wouldn't go serious. I looked at her, and now I'm going to tear up. Um, when I was out of the room, I was meeting with other dads in this little uh, lobby or like kitchenette. And they had a little freezer with Italian ice, and we'd just sit there and eat Italian ice and talk about our stories and like hope for each other and talk about how like we have no control over this thing. It was like, Oh, we're going to eat Italian ice. <laughs> and it was all kinds of stories, you know. After about a week, Jenny mentioned that she felt the baby turn, and the nurse assured us that it doesn't work that way. You don't know if the baby turns. She's like, but I feel like I felt the baby turn. So they checked it, and sure enough, the baby turned. <laughs> baby turned breach. And so we had to rush to delivery, and it was a burst of emotion. The fear we had became mixed with surprise, relief, excitement, and thankfulness that the baby turned breech. We had no control over that. Here, joy felt like freedom to celebrate. It was not a cover-up over our pain, nor a denial of pain. Remember, we're, we're still in the months of grieving my mother's death. But it was a freedom to imagine that something might connect the realities of our pain to the possibilities of hope. Joy became freedom to feel delight in the things that bring us awe, like the sound of a baby cooing, or the face of a baby sleeping, or the image of a baby trying to grab an Advent reading. Last story. It's about Mary, Jesus' mother. She was a soon-to-be-wed Middle Eastern teenager from an area of the region that was looked down upon and considered shady by those who were of wealth. She lived in an area where homes were so close to each other that people were all up in each other's business. And when she hears that she's pregnant, 
with the Messiah, the Christ, she has all the fear of what it will mean for her and all the fear of all the rumors that might be spread about her, but it is intermingled with joy. Hear her song. She, she responds with a song. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me and, his, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and has scattered the proud in, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Joy for Mary is a freedom to embrace her story, her whole story, her identity, her people. She finds freedom to reject shame and to reject the pressures of oppressive systems. Joy for Mary is the freedom to be honest about injustice and to sing and dance in its face. It's not a cutesy song by any means. It is not what you like, typically think like a mother song about a baby. But what she finds is the kind of joy that allows her to name the problems, to bring her whole life to it and no longer be afraid of who she is. As we go to communion today, I challenge you to, ref to reflect on the freedom found in joy and how that might be expressed in your life, in the lives of those close to you. Perhaps joy this season will be a freedom to let go of the pressures to hold everything together. Perhaps joy this season will be a freedom to feel wonder, to feel thankfulness. Perhaps joy this season will be a freedom to celebrate and delight in those little things that create a sense of awe. Or maybe joy this season is joining Mary in the freedom to bring your whole story, freedom to reject shame, to be honest, to be honest about the injustices in our world, in the life of church, and to sing and dance in the face of it all. Joy really is all of those things. The freedom found in joy is all of that. But may you feel the grace to lean into the freedom as the Spirit leads you. Grace and peace be with you.